Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovelies. I'm back, and as promised, a double episode. The first half are tales of origin, folklore tales straight from 1920, with how the fox got his white breast, how the tiger got his strength, why the goat lives with mankind, and how the ox came to be the servant of man. Four tales of why animals behave the way they do with humans, and all the way back in 1920, there was commentary on not wasting food and plundering the planet, which I found fascinating. You'll see what I mean regarding the tale involving the ox, just some interesting insights on how much humans knew back then, of which these tales were captured in 1920 but most certainly were written prior to 1823. Also today I'm enjoying a brand new tea called Hobart Breakfast and it's yum. Here's the description for you lovelies. Inspired by the Apple Isle itself, Ceylon black tea is blended with golden juicy apple pieces to deliver a tassy taste sensation. Enjoy with a splash of milk or on its own. I almost included store in a cool dry place as text to describe this tea. <laughs> and also, your second section of this episode is a remastered old time radio episode from the Crime Classics Vault called Coidy and Richardson. Two unlikely friends and pirates plunder and pillage their way through a number of boats, people, and eventually a ship captain at point-blank range whose widow will get the best of them. Pour yourself a tea and join me for something unique and special, just like you. How the Fox Got His White Breast Once a fox, whose name was U Mirsiang, lived in a cave near the residence of a Siam, otherwise known as a chief. This fox was a very shameless marauder, and had the impudence to conduct his raids right into the Siam's private barnyard, and to devour the best of his flocks, causing him much annoyance and loss. The Siam gave his servants orders to catch U Mirsiang, but though they laid many traps and snares in his way, he was so wily and so full of cunning that he managed to evade every pitfall and to continue his raids on the Siam's flocks. One of the servants, more ingenious than his fellows, suggested that they should bring out the iron cage in which the Siam was wont to lock up state criminals and try and wheedle the fox into entering it. So, they brought out the iron cage and set it open near the entrance to the barnyard, with a man on guard to watch. By and by, Umyasang came walking by very cautiously, sniffing the air guardedly to try and discover if any hidden dangers lay in his path. He soon reached the cage, but it aroused no suspicion in him, for it was so large and so unlike every trap he was familiar with that he entered it without a thought of peril, and ere he was aware of his error, the man on guard had bolted the door behind him and made him a prisoner. There was great jubilation in the Siam's household when the capture of the fox was made known. The Siam himself was so pleased that he commanded his servants to prepare a feast on the following day as a reward for their vigilance and ingenuity. 
He also gave orders not to kill the fox till the next day, and that he should be brought out of the cage after the feast and executed in a public place as a warning to other thieves and robbers. So, U Myrsang was left to pine in his prison for that night. The fox was very unhappy, as all people in confinement must be. He explored the cage from end to end, but found no passage of egress. He thought out many plans of escape, but not one of them could be put into execution, as he was driven to face the doom of certain death. He whined in his misery and despair and roamed about the cage all night. Sometime towards morning, he was disturbed by the sounds of footsteps outside his cage, and thinking that the CM's men had come to kill him, he lay very still, hardly venturing to breathe. To his relief, the newcomer turned out to be a belated traveller, who, upon seeing a cage, sat down, leaning his weary body against the bars, while U Mishyang kept very still, not wishing to disclose his presence until he found out something more about his unexpected companion, and hoping also to turn his coming to some good account. The traveller was an outlaw driven away from a neighbouring state for some offence, and was in great perplexity how to procure the permission of the Siem, into whose state he had now wandered, to dwell there and be allowed to cultivate the land. Thinking that he was quite alone, he began to talk to himself, not knowing that a wily fox was listening attentively to all that he was saying. I am a most unfortunate individual said the stranger. I've been driven away from my home and people. I have no money and no friends, and no belongings except this little polished mirror which no one is likely to buy. I am so exhausted that if they drive me out of this state again, I shall die of starvation on the roadside. If I could only find a friend who could help me win favour with the CM so that I may be permitted to live here unmolested for a time, till my trouble blows over. Um Xiang's heart was beating very fast with renewed hope when he heard these words, and he tried to think of some way to delude the stranger to imagine that he was someone who had influence with this CM, and to get the men to open the cage and let him out. So with all the cunning he was capable of, he accosted the man in his most affable and courteous manner, Friend and brother, he said, do not despair. I think I can put you in the way, not only to win the CM's favor, but to become a member of his family. The outlaw was greatly embarrassed when he discovered that someone had overheard him talking. It was such a dark night he could not see the fox, but thought that it was a fellow man who had accosted him. Fearing to commit himself further if he talked about himself, he tried to divert the conversation away from himself, and asked his companion who he was and what he was doing alone in the cage at night. The fox, nothing loth to monopolize the conversation, gave a most plausible account of his misfortunes, and his tales seemed so sincere and apparently true, that it convinced the man on the instant. There is great trouble in this state, said U Misyang. The only daughter of this Siam is sick, and according to divinations, she's likely to die, unless she can be wedded before sunset tomorrow, and her bridegroom must be a native of some other state. The time was too short to send envoys to any of the neighboring states to arrange for the marriage, 
and as I happened to pass this way on a journey, the CM's men forcibly detained me on finding that I was a foreigner, and tomorrow they will compel me to marry the CM's daughter, which is much against my will. If you open the door of this cage and let me out, you may become the CM's son-in-law by taking my place in the cage. What manner of man are you? Asked the outlaw. That you should disdain the honor of marrying the daughter of a CM. You are mistaken that I disdain the honor, said the fox. If I had been single, I should have rejoiced in the privilege, but I am married already, and have a wife and family in my own village far from here, and my desire is to be released so that I may return to them. In that case, replied the man, I think you are right to refuse, but as for me, it will be a most desirable union, and I shall be only too glad to exchange places with you. Thereupon, he opened the door of the cage and went in, while Umya Xiang slipped out and bolted the door behind him. The man was so pleased with the seeming good fortune that, at parting, he took off his polished mirror, which he suspended around his neck by a silver chain, and begged his companion to accept it in remembrance of their short but strange encounter. As he was handing it to Umya Xiang, his hand came into contact with the fox's thick fur, and he realized then that he had been duped and had owing to his credulity released the most thieving rogue in the forest all regrets were in vain he was firmly imprisoned within the cage while he heard the laughter of umu siang echoing in the distance <laughs> as he hurried away to safety taking the polished mirror with him the fox was well aware that it was unsafe for him to remain any longer in that locality so after fastening the mirror firmly around his neck he hastened away with all speed, and did not halt till he came to a remote and secluded part of the jungle, where he stopped to take his breath and to rest. Unknown to Umu Xiang, a big tiger was lying in wait for prey in that part of the jungle, and upon seeing the fox, made ready to spring upon him. But the fox, hearing some noise, turned around suddenly, and by that movement, the polished mirror came right in front of the tiger's face. The tiger saw in it the reflection of his own big jaws and flaming eyes, from which he slunk away in terror, thinking that Umu Xiang was some great tiger demon haunting the jungle in the shape of a fox, and from that time the tiger has never been known to attack the fox. One day, when hotly pursued by hunters, the fox plunged into a deep river. As he swam across, the flood carried away his polished mirror, but the stamp of it remains to this day on his breast, in the form of a patch of white fur. How the Tiger Got His Strength After the animals were created, they were sent to live in the jungle, but they were so foolish that they got into one another's way and interfered one with another and caused much inconvenience in the world. In order to produce better order, the Bilyas gods called together a Durbar to decide on the different qualities with which it would be well to endow the animals, so as to make them intelligent and able to live in harmony with one another. After this, mankind and all the animals were summoned to the presence of the Bilyas, and each one was given such intelligence and sense as seemed to best suit his might and disposition. The man received beauty and wisdom, and to the tiger were given craftiness and the power to walk silently. 
when the man returned to his kindred, and his mother beheld him, her heart was lifted with pride, for she knew that the Blias had given to him the best of their gifts, and that henceforth all the animals would be inferior to him in beauty and intelligence. Realizing with regret that he had not received physical strength equal to the beauty of his person, and that consequently his life would always be in danger, she told her son to go back to the Blias to ask for the gift of strength. The man went back to the Blias according to the command of his mother, but it was so late that when he arrived, the Blias were about to retire. Seeing that he was comelier than any of the animals and possessed more wisdom, which made him worthy of the gift of strength, they told him to come on the morrow and they would bestow upon him the desired gift. The man was dismissed till the following day, but he went away happy in his mind knowing that the Blias would not go back on their word. Now it happened that the tiger was roaming about in the vicinity, and by reason of his silent tread, he managed to come unobserved and near enough to hear the Blias and the man talking about the gift of strength. He determined to forestall the man on the morrow, and to obtain the gift of strength for himself. Soon he slunk away lest it should be discovered that he had been listening. Early on the following morning, before the Blias had come forth from their retirement, the tiger went to their abode and sent in a messenger to say that he had come according to the command to obtain the gift of strength, upon which the Blias endowed him with the strength twelve times greater than what he had possessed before, thinking that they were bestowing it upon the man. The tiger felt himself growing strong, and as soon as he left the abode of the Blias, he leapt forward twelve strides, and twelve strides upward, and so strong was he that it was unto him by as one short stride. Then he knew that he had truly forestalled the man, and had obtained the gift of strength, and could overcome men in battle. Later in the day, in accordance with the command he had received, the man set out for the abode of the Blias, but on the way the tiger met him and challenged him to fight, and began to leap and bound upwards and forwards to show how strong he was, and said that he had received the twelve strengths, and no one would be able to withstand him. He was just about to spring, when the man evaded him and ran away towards the abode of the Blias. When he came there and presented himself before them, they asked him angrily, Why dost thou come again to trouble us? We have already given thee the gift of strength. Then the man knew the tiger's boast was true, and he told the Blias of his encounter with the tiger on the way. And of his boast that he had and of his boast that he had obtained the gift of strength. They were greatly annoyed that deception had been practiced on them, but there is no decree by which to recall a gift when once it has been bestowed by the Blias. They looked upon the man with pity, and said that one beautiful and full of wisdom should not be left defenseless at the mercy of the inferior animals. So they gave unto him a bow and an arrow, and told him. When the tiger attacks thee with his strength, shoot, and the arrow will pierce his body and kill him. Behold, we have given to thee the gift of skill to make and to use weapons of warfare, whereby thou wilt be able to combat the lower animals. Thus the tiger received strength, and the man received the gift of skill. The mother of mankind, when she saw it, told her sons to abstain from using their weapons against one another, but to turn them against the animals only, according to the decree of the Blias.
Why the Goat Lives with Mankind In early times, the goat lived in the jungle, leading a free and independent life, like all the other animals. The following story gives an account of her flight from the animals to make her dwelling with man. One fine spring day, when the young leaves were sprouting on the forest trees, Kapalang, the goat, went out in search of food. Her appetite was sharpened by the delicious smell of the spring, which filled the air in the forest, so, not being satisfied with grass, she began to pluck the green leaves from a bush. While she was busy plucking and eating, she was startled to hear the deep growl of a tiger close behind her. The tiger asked her angrily, what art thou doing there? Kat Blang was so upset by this sudden interruption and in such fear of the big and ferocious beast that she began to tremble from head to foot so that even her beard shook violently and she hardly knew what she was doing or saying. In her fright, she quavered, I am eating, Kla, which means tiger, instead of saying, I am eating, Sla, which means leaves. The tiger took his answer for insolence and became very angry. He was preparing to spring upon her when he caught sight of her shaking beard, which appeared to him like a tuft of hair on a warrior's lance when it is lifted against an enemy. He thought that Kat Blung must be some powerful and savage beast able to attack him, and he ran away from her in terror. Now Kat Blung, having an ungrateful heart instead of being thankful for her deliverance, grew discontented with her lot and began to grumble because she had not been endowed with the strength attributed to her by the tiger, and she went about bewailing her inferiority. One day in her wanderings, she climbed to the top of an overhanging cliff, and there she lay down to chew the cud and, as usual, to dwell on her grievances. It happened that the tiger was again prowling in the same vicinity, but when he saw the goat approaching, he fled in fear and hid himself under the very cliff onto which she had climbed. There he lay very still, for fear of betraying his presence to the goat, for he was still under the delusion that she was a formidable and mighty animal. Kat Blung, all unconscious of his presence, began to grumble aloud, saying, I am the poorest and the weakest of all the beasts. Without any means of defense or strength to withstand an attack, I have neither tusks nor claws to make an enemy fear me. It is true that the tiger once ran away from me, because he mistook my beard for a son of strength, but if he had only known the truth, he would have killed me on the instant, for even a small dog could kill me if he clutched me by the throat. The tiger beneath the rock was listening to every word, and as he listened, his wrath was greatly kindled to find that he had disgraced himself by running away from such a contemptible creature, and he determined now to avenge himself for that humiliation. He crept stealthily from his hiding place, and ere she was aware of his approach, Kat Blang was clutched by the throat and killed. In order to restore his prestige, the tiger proclaimed far and wide how he had captured and killed the goat, and after that, other tigers and savage beasts began to hunt the goats, and there followed such a general slaughter of goats that they were nearly exterminated. Driven to great extremity, the few remaining goats held a tribal council to consider how to save themselves from the onslaught of the tigers, but finding themselves powerless to offer any resistance, they determined to apply to mankind for protection. When they came to him, man said that he could not come to the jungle to defend them, but they must come and live in his village if they wished to be protected by him. So the goats ran away from the jungle forever, 
and came to live with mankind. How the Ox Came to Be the Servant of Man When mankind first came to live upon the earth, they committed many blunders. For they were ignorant and wasteful, not knowing how to shift for themselves and having no one to teach them. The deity who was watching their destinies saw their misfortunes and pitied them, for he saw that unless their wastefulness ceased, they would perish of want when they multiplied and became numerous in the world. So the deity called to him the ox, who was a strong and patient animal, and sent him as a messenger to mankind to bless them and to show them how to prosper. The ox had to travel a long way in the heat, and was much worried by the flies that swarmed round his path, and the small insect that clung to his body and sucked his blood. Then a crow alighted on his back and began to peck at the insects, upon which it loved to feed. This eased the ox greatly, and he was very pleased to see the crow, and he told her where he was going, as a messenger from the deity to mankind. The crow was very interested when she heard this, and questioned him minutely about the message he had been sent to deliver, and the ox told her that he had been commanded to say to mankind how he was to give them the blessing of the deity, and to warn them not to waste products of the earth lest they died of want. They must learn to be thrifty and careful, so that they might live to be old and wise, and they were to boil only sufficient rice for each meal so as not to waste their food. When the crow heard this, she was much disturbed, for she saw that there would be no leavings for the crows if mankind followed these injunctions. So she said to the ox, Will you repay my kindness to you in destroying the insects that worry you by giving a message like that to mankind to deprive me of my accustomed spoil? She begged of him to teach mankind to cook much rice always, and to ordain many ceremonies to honour their dead ancestors by offering rice to the gods, so that the crows and the other birds might have abundance to eat. Thus, because she had eased his torments, the ox listened to her words, and when he came to mankind, he delivered only part of the message of the deity, and part of the message of the crow. When the time came for the ox to return, a great fear overcame him, as he approached the abode of the deity, for he saw that he had greatly trespassed, and that the deity would be wrathful. In the hope of obtaining forgiveness, he at once confessed his wrongdoing, how he had been tempted by the crow, and had delivered the wrong message. The confession did not mitigate the anger of the deity, for he arose with great fury. He struck the ox such a blow on the mouth that all his upper teeth fell out, and another blow behind the ribs, which made a great hollow there. And he drove the disobedient animal from his presence to seek pasture and shelter wherever he could find them. After this, the ox came back sorrowfully to mankind, and for food and for shelter he offered to become their servant, and, because he was strong and patient, mankind allowed him to become their servant. Ever since he was struck by the deity, the ox has had no teeth in the upper jaw, and the hollow behind his ribs remain to this day. It can never be filled up, however much grass and grain he eats, for it is the mark of the fist of the deity. Good evening. This is Crime Classics, 
I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That's a frigate cutting through the Caribbean. It's just before dawn and cloudless is the sky. The year is 1736, when the stars were younger than they are now and shone more brightly. And this particular sky of tropic brilliance was a navigator's dream. Land was close, and a trade wind bellied the mainsail and set the good frigate scudding. And daylight was just beyond the horizon. There, at the wheel, the helmsman, John Richardson. And holding his bottle for him was his small and drunken friend, Richard Coyle. The frigate sank in six minutes and drew sharks. The helmsman and his friend got away, only to commit other nuisances on the seven seas. So tonight, my report to you on Coyle and Richardson. Why they hung in a spanking breeze. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. making rum in Havana in 1736. The place went good with rum. It was hot. There were a lot of mosquitoes. And in every nook and cranny, there were dark-eyed beauties. It was necessary to fortify oneself. Beside which, Havana was under almost continual attack by pirates and buccaneers, some of whom stayed over because of the rum. So the town was peopled mostly, beside the dark-eyed beauties, that is, by transient cutthroats. Deserting sailors, runaway slaves, uncaught murderers, and, generally speaking, black-hearted knaves. All in all, a populace dedicated to Saturday night. One of the fellows who just had Saturday night and was lying in an alley was a deserting seaman named John Richardson. That's John for you. And here comes Dick. Dick Coyle, a little man who robbed drunken sailors. Here we come. Such a big one, yar, mate. So much of you unconscious. Now let's see what you got in your pockets to make a small one like me more comfortable. Ah, now here's a... Gotcha, little weasel. Let me go! Let me go! Little scary. Going through my pockets, were you? How you want it, mate? Knife or just twist your neck? <laughs> Little sparrow, think I will twist your head clean off. No, mate. No, mate, listen to me. At what? It's an important thing I got to tell you, mate. Ah. Uh... I swear. And something to give you, too, mate. Hey, now. Hey. What? Ain't you, uh... Thank you. I'm John Richardson. What? John Richardson. John. Oh, John. 
Big John. How be you, John? What weaseling you doing, mister, to keep me from killing you? Now, why should you be killing me? For stealing my pockets dry. Oh, I was leaning close over you to see if you be Big John Richardson. Because I got this for you. What? This watch. This watch I'm holding up for you. Oh. See how it spins, John. See how pretty from a chain. Pretty. Gold. Pretty. And it's yours, Big John Richardson. Take it. Go on. What's the matter? You weren't looking for me to give me a... What? What? There comes a sailor, John. With a sea bag, John. What of it? Who can tell what's in the sea bag? Jewels, maybe. Or what can be sold for money. Could you take it from him, John? Give me the watch, you said. You take that sea bag from the sailor boy and I'll give it to you. You swear. I do, John. Oh, I do. Now give me the watch. Now, first, let's see what's in the sea bag. Why, here's a pretty John. A knitted hat. Put it on, John. Do. I'll help you. There. How nice you look, John. And a friendship was born. And all over the Caribbean, people ducked when John Richardson and Dick Coyle came into town. However, there were the unwarned, the unwary. For instance, on a night in Port-au-Prince, Alaska off a trader. You can pluck the earring from his ear, John. Get him. Oh, Alaska. Good, John. Hatch the boy, John. Help yourself. It looks fine in your ear. Or on a night in Roanoke, just when the colonists were finally going good in there with the Indians. Indians has got nothing. Have a dozen of them before us, worse than night. And then, professionals that they were, they were ready for New York. And they made out well. The big city folks hadn't heard about them, so no one was ducking. And just when Big John and Little Dick were raking it in, so to speak, you guessed it, a woman. Put me down. Put me down. Put her down, John. He's a strong one, John, is he, Bertha? Oh, yes. John. Aye. Would you like to kiss Miss Nolden? Aye. He'd like to kiss you. Oh. Go on, Johnny. <laughs> He's my friend, Johnny, is He's my friend. Dick. Uh, Dickie. Kiss her again, John. Kiss her. Now you listen to me, Dickie. Dickie! Now, don't you do it, John. Don't you do nothing to me. I'll leave him be, John. I just want to tell him... I'm listening at you, John. 
I like this one, Dickie. Uh-huh. I'd like to marry this one. I'll be blued. I like you too, John. Oh, Oscar! Oscar! Uh, you? Uh, me, uh... Miss Nolan, my friend would consider it indeed a great honor if you give him your hand in Marion. Oh, I'd love to. the events immediately surrounding the marriage of Bertha Nolding and John Richardson. They moved into a small cottage and took in one boarder. You know who, Dick Coyle. John was so enamored with Bertha that Dick couldn't get him to go out nights and do their routine on the docks. So soon, their money ran out. Let's go to sea again, John boy. Bertha. Yes, John boy? He wants me to go to sea again. Why? The money's run out. Why don't you go to sea again, John Bowie? And they got a berth on the good ship Malta Queen, shipping tar out of Boston, picking up sugar out of Havana and taking it to Florida. And one night, just before dawn, John was at the wheel, and Coyle was by his side. Have another, John Boy. Drink here. Good rum. Uh, Havana rum is the best. And look what you've done. And what have I done? Let go of the wheel and look at the zigzag you're making. (laughs) (laughs) Come, wheel. Come to me, wheel. Wheel spin. (laughs) I'll have you another, John boy. After you, mate. Oh, no, after you. All righty. <coughs> Havana rum's the best rum. Tell you what it does. Gooden's the eye. No, it no. Gooden's the eye, eye. Gooden's it. Give me a for instance. Give me one, Johnny boy. Off the bow there. Rocks. The kiss of three sisters rock, my call No, well, when I sail... And with... you're thinking we'll hit it with the boaty now, the way we're sailing. I rather do. That we won't. Sharp eyes in me now to Havana Rum. shipwreck, don't you, in which the frigate sank in six minutes? It is interesting to note that the coral rock known as the Kiss of Three Sisters was later changed by seamen to Shark's Feast Rock, and so it remains today. Coyle and Richardson, however, clung to a spar and drifted to shore, the sole survivors of their grisly mistake. They were picked up from an atoll in Key West by a pirate band with whom they made fast friends as their personal philosophies were very much akin. In six months, Richardson and Coyle were back in New York, sunburned and broke. 
They made their way immediately to the little cottage where resides John's wife, Bertha. And what did you bring from me, John? I had your name tattooed to me. Now, what a thing to bring to a wife. Dick here had your name tattooed to him, too. Now, did you, Dick? I right across my chest. Mrs. Bertha Richardson. Your love, the two of you. Now, I have a surprise for you. What be it? I've got 800 pounds. Oh. Have you now? My daddy dear died of the jumping blunders. Oh, poor man. And 800 pounds he left, did he? He did, indeed. And where's the pounds, me darling Mrs. Richardson? In the loose brick there. Keeping it as a surprise for my wandering Johnny boy. Come to me, Johnny boy. Aye. John? Johnny boy, I missed you. Do it, John. A pretty throat, John. Bertha. John, do it. We'll have that money, John. Bertha. Bertha. That's the lad. Bertha. You've done it, lad. Bertha. Lad. Lad, John boy. Let go, Johnny boy. You've done it. It's here, John. The money's here, just like Bertha said. What a surprise for a homecoming. Good boy. Faber Master. The boys signed on. Three nights at sea, Dick Coyle got the first mate so drunk that all he had to do was lead him by the hand and... That's how Coyle's friend Richardson got to be first mate. is where Richardson and Coyle made their next appearance. They were in a gondola being pulled down the Grand Canal, enjoying the sights and the company of Carlotta Faber. It was my husband kind to you? A question asked because Captain Lucian Faber was her husband, and Captain Faber was the master of the vessel that had brought the lads to Venice. I was kind to them. Ain't she a pretty one, Mr. Coyle? The captain asked, jabbing Dick Coyle with his elbow. What's the elbow, Captain? If my mate stumbled overboard, I made Richardson there take his place. And when I lost my second in the blow off the Azores, well, I promoted Mr. Coyle. 
Didn't I, Mr... Oh, please, Captain. And a fine mate, I'd say, Mr. Richardson did make. And you'd be saying through, Mrs. Captain Faber. Look at him there, sleeping like a babe. Big John Richardson. Bambino. Molte bambino. Molte, molte. Carlotta, you promised not to talk Italian when I come home. I've got no way of knowing what you said when... I said simply that Mr. Richardson was a large baby. Large, large. Captain. Uh, yes? How come you come to settle here in Venice, Captain? Carlotta, her home. She doesn't want to leave. I want to take her to Camden, New Jersey to live. My home. But the dear darling wanted to stay here in Venice. Molte, molte, molte. Huh? What did you say, dear darling? Nothing. Bring yourself here, dear darling, and lean against me. Come. No. Now you just come here. No, no. Now you don't have to be bashful about my... If I will move, I will awaken this great bambino who has fallen asleep in such a way that I... Let's don't wake him, Captain. He'll just caught her up. Let's talk about what we started out to talk about. Yes. John and me always wanted to own a ship, Captain. What are you humming for, Carlotta, dear darling? I want to hum. That is all. Captain. Oh, yes. Go on, sir. What were you saying? Well, John and me always wanted a boat. Ain't saying we got enough to buy a whole boat. Not a whole boat such as yours. But half a boat. How much you holding, mister? Six hundred pounds. Can't sell you no partnership for so little. Seven, Captain. I'm loading cargo tomorrow for Honduras, mister. Before I get clearing, I'm needing more than seven, mister. Eight, and that's all we got. And that's all I need. We'll draw papers in the morning. Good. Full part. Full partner. And one of us gets hurt or dead, the share goes to the other. Agree. John, Johnny boy, wait. <clears throat> we own half a boat, Johnny. Ah. Half a boat. How'd I get here? More. Now mind you, Johnny boy, keep it on course. I... Pull the wheel as tight as if we your own lady. Aye. This ain't the Malta Queen to be run up on the rocks, John. This is our own ship. Ah. Johnny, boy. That's thinking you're doing when you say it's a shame only half the ship belongs to us. And such a shame, too. Aye. Aye, you say. And why do you say that? What could be in that thinking brain of yours? Huh? You said twas a shame only half the ship was... You said it, so it must be a shame. Shall I tell you why, John boy? Aye. Because half a ship is half a cargo and half a profit. Aye. And the whole ship... Well, now listen, John boy. We contracted with a captain. One partner dies, his share goes to the other. Aye. He's in his cabin, John boy. In his hammock. Peaceful. 
Um... Let's have him an accident, John boy. Aye. No. Aye. Aye, Primo. Avast, Primo. Take the wheel for Mr. Richardson, Mr. The captain's calling to us. Oh, it's a good day for us, John boy. You know who is a nice lady? Uh-huh. The captain's wife. She's a widow you can marry with. Aye. Here. Oh, Mr. Hartley. Well, what can I do for you, mister? A steward, you be holding the blunderbuss under lock and key. Aye. And so? Well, let's have it, lad. Let's have it. Only the captain asks for the blunderbuss and gets it, mister. The first mate here wants it. I want it. Only the captain wants it and gets it. John, boy. Aye. Such a big gun, this blunderbuss. Come along, John. It's a beautiful way to die, Johnny boy. Sleeping in a hammock with softy dreams. Put the muzzle to him, John, and send him on. Well, do it. Dickie. Do it. I can't. Get the heart of a man full of trigger. Shoot his head. Uh, 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 stuck. What, what is happening here? Strangle him, John boy. Throw the gun aside and strangle him. Oh, no, you don't. No. Shoot him, strangle him. Run, put the gun aside, strangle him. Which? What do you want me to do? Catch him, catch him and kill him. He's climbing the rigging, Dickie. Let him climb. We'll shoot him down from there like a nesting bird. Hey there, Captain. You know what's going to happen to you, don't you? Mean man, you'll sell to the death of all of us. Get the trigger fixed, John boy. Aye. Aye, aye. Let me try to construct the picture for you. A picture first of frigate under full sail on the Honduras run. Sea, sky, ship. Now rigging of ship. Now on rigging captain of ship. Fresh from a noonday snooze and hammock who, from force of habit, had time only to grab his plumed captain's hat. Scared. Below him on deck, Dickie Coyle and John Richardson. Dickie threatening the captain's life, and John fingering the trigger of a blunderbuss, which had a pretty good range. And now, gathering toward the scene of this nautical picture, the crew muttering, pointing, and wide-eyed. Now the picture moves, as the captain holds on with one hand and gesticulates with the other. Then... Listen to me. I'm your captain. And you who have sailed with me before know, oh, how well you know, that I have only your welfare at heart. Which of you has it in him to stand by and watch his captain perish? Which of you...
does not remember the storms I've sailed you through, the still seas and the torrents, and which of you could not come to me in times of stress, needing advices or medicine, and I would give it to you. Man, I order you, seize those two men who wish to murder me and throw me into irons. I order it, and there will be rum in the forecastle when I get back on deck. You heard me, men. The men, used to a ship where fair play had been practiced, only shifted their feet and listened just as attentively to what Dicky Coyle had to say. And Dicky Coyle said it. Get on, men. I'll divide with all of you what money's there are in the captain's chest. Get below. How's the trigger, John boy? Fixed. Throw him overboard, John. Now turn the boat around, John boy, and let's go back to Venice. It is the two of you. After a year, it's been. Hello, ma'am. Okay. I cannot allow myself to say it. Oh, yes, you can. Your husband's dead, ma'am. You tell me this. Foot caught in the hired, ma'am, and over I went. In a storm he was. Men begging him to stay below. They loved him so. But not him, brave fool that he was. Police! Ma'am, what are you saying? There came here a steward to my husband, from whom you wrested the blunder, but he would not give you. He has told me the story. How you shot, John boy, we'd better run. We'd best leave here, John boy. I'd like to read a translation from a Venetian chronicle of the time. Richardson and Coyle were apprehended by the local police on the Ponte Vecchio, where they were splitting a goatskin of wine. When taken in custody, they were dressed as gondoliers. In prison, Richard Coyle convinced his jailer that a terrible mistake had been made, that he and his friend were indeed servants to the King of Naples. They were released. Don't feel too badly, good man. Mistakes will happen. Come on, John. The King must be worried. Come, come. Only to be apprehended again when they paused over another skin of wine. And they were tried and found guilty of murder and mutiny. And one day, they were led in chains to a ship of the Navy which was about to sail. The order of execution had it that Richard Coyle was to die first. But there was a conference. You want to go first, don't you, John boy? Well, sure you do. I want to go first. So the order was reversed. And as the ship sailed to sea, they were hanged from a yard arm. And past the breakwater, they were cut down. 
John Richardson hit the water first. Richardson, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed by Bernard Herman and conducted by Lud Gluskin. And the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Walter Tetley was heard as Coyle and Clayton Post as Richardson. Featured in the cast were Georgia Ellis, Herb Butterfield, Gladys Holland and Charles Calvert. Gil Warren speaking. Well, listeners, did you enjoy your folk tales of old? Which one was your favorite? I particularly like the tale about the tiger gaining its strength, effectively stealing it from us wherein we receive the power of skill to match all of the power that the animal kingdom would throw at us. Seems like we played the species long game. <laughs> and what of Tweedledee and Tweedledum, pirate loafers that traveled from one place to the next, using only brute strength and guile to get what they wanted? Still, in the end, they got their just desserts, even if many had to die by their hands. Either way, I hope you loved this double episode. Mates, now it's time to thank my Patreon supporters, and first up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, Majestic Maya. When they were giving out gifts to humanity in our world, they gave you the gift of generosity, because goodness how you support this podcast. Thank you, Maya, for your awesome and amazing support at this tier, a level that I won't ever, ever forget. I've been utilizing your support to pay authors and pay off subscriptions to keep doing what I'm doing. Thank you. A huge honorable thank you as well to Divided by Zero and Solstra for supporting me at this tier from the previous month. I just wanted to say a special thank you for supporting me at this level. I'll never forget your contribution. And my White Tea Warlord, Lezosaurus Rex, thank you mate for your awesome level of support. I've been using voice mod in today's episode to flex my voice over muscles, and that's all thanks to your contribution. Also, a big thank you for your patience in my response via email. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, and I appreciate the breathing room. Cheers, mate, and I'll be in touch. And of course, the lifeblood of this podcast, my Earl Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and divided by zero. Welcome, mate. Thank all of you for your support. If you want to support me directly, just like these awesome people do, you can visit www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. I don't run ads, never will, and all the support you provide me flies back into production. All of it. I hope you have a fantastic night or day, and I'll see you Wednesday. As always, folks, till next we meet.